HVAC 360, episode number 42, Gas Monitoring. Hey, welcome back everybody to another episode of HVAC 360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson. This week, we are going to be talking with Scott Bissett. Scott is the Director of Sales and Marketing over at Armstrong Monitoring. Now, uh, the reason I want to talk about gas monitoring is it's something that I've seen all too often happen on jobs, uh, where the engineer knows that they need to provide it, uh, they kind of put it on the drawings a little bit, but it's poorly coordinated, and it's often you know, forgotten about in, uh, in, in, in certain aspects. So, you know, there's a large coordination between the mechanical, the electrical, uh, the contractor, getting it right, knowing exactly what to put in, the bells and whistles that, you know, literally that need to go on the system. So I wanted to uh, sit down and talk with Scott a little bit to, uh, f- to figure out exactly, you know, what the differences are to, to, to gas monitoring. What, what do we need to do? And if you don't, uh, gas monitoring, if that's, if, if you're not, Catching on to what I'm saying, uh, if you have, say, a refrigerant leak uh, is a typical place that we'd see this. Uh, so you'd, if, you, if you had ch- uh, chiller equipment in a mechanical room and there was a refrigerant leak, you'd want gas monitoring there to be able to detect that refrigerant leak so you can start an evacuation sequence. Or if you're in a, uh, a parking garage and you have, uh, or a loading dock area, and you have cars idling, or you have a lot of buildup of uh, combustion uh, products of combustion, and you want to be able to ventilate that properly, you want to be able to detect when the level goes too far to be able to activate that ventilation sequence. It, you know, it, it's sad, sad to say, but I've seen these, you know, drag on until the end. Nobody resolve exactly, you know, what needs to be done and what ne- details need to take place uh, before they get this properly implemented. And, and frankly, you know, will the system work without it? Absolutely. Uh, would somebody die if, uh, you know, the system wasn't put in? It's a, it's a real possibility. So, I mean, it's something that should be taken seriously, even though the building will still work if it's not implemented properly. So uh, let's talk to Scott and find out a little bit more about gas monitoring. All right, let's cut to the tape. All right, today we are going to uh, we're going to be speaking with Scott Bissett, uh, Director of Sales and Marketing over at Armstrong Monitoring. How are you doing this morning, Scott? I'm doing very well yourself, Matt. I am doing great, thanks. Um, so tell me a little bit about Armstrong Monitoring. Well, the company itself, uh, we, we design and manufacture a, a full-line of fixed gas detection systems for both com- commercial, industrial, and uh, military industry. Um, the company was founded in 1981, so this is our 32nd year in, in operation. We're based in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Uh, company is uh, ISO 9001-2008 registered, and uh, I guess one of the more interesting uh, pieces of, of info on the company is that we're powered using 100% green electricity. Excellent. Well, kudos to that. So tell me a little bit about, what I mean, what's the, the, the basic anatomy of when you talk about gas monitoring systems, or let's, let's even say, how, how would you uh, kind of define gas monitoring systems? Well, the, the easiest way to look at it would would be really, I think, three subcomponents. Uh, the 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 first being the sensor, which is the the, the piece that actually will detect the gas in air. The transmitter, uh, which will take the signal from the sensor, condition it, normalize it, and then output it either to uh, to a control system or other device. 
and then you'll have the monitor or controller that they're they're often also referred to, which uh, which provides power to the sensor transmitters. Uh, typically, will also provide the uh, the relays that are used for interlocking ventilation or other auxiliary devices. Now, the, typically, these these kind of systems are going to be you know powered off of a like a one twenty circuit. They're not going to be you know uh, battery powered, are they? Or do you have applications like that? There are a few systems that are available now uh, that that do use battery powered systems. Uh, Armstrong monitoring doesn't use those at the moment. Our, our, our view is that it's still an emerging technology. Uh, we want to have uh, 100% uptime is really our focus, and the, the best way to do that at this point is, uh, is using 110-volt power, as you, uh, as you said, uh, and oftentimes in, in safety-critical applications, we'll actually have these systems running on battery backup as well. Okay, so I mean, not, not just emergency power, but battery backup as well. Yeah, when they're, when they're really critical applications, either from a process or from a safety standpoint, it's quite frequent to see uh, you know a, a two to three hour battery backup uh, put in place in line with uh, with our system. So is that is that something that that you typically would you know in in, in these types of situations where you would, you'd recommend that to the uh, the engineer, or is that something that comes prepackaged with your system? It's something that we usually will will uh, will let people know that is available. Uh, it's not something that we manufacture, so it's it's something that we can assist with sizing. Um, oftentimes, the the electrical and mechanical contractors can provide these uh, these these kind of aftermarket pieces at, at at same or better cost than we could. So we simply want to inform our clients that uh, if you're going to go down this this path, this is what you need to plan for. Uh, we have certainly provided them on occasion, but it's uh, it's not always the most uh, most effective use of a of a client's uh, of a client's money. Right, right. So, I mean, what what kind of applications? You know, if, if somebody is a little bit fuzzy and they say gas monitoring, what? How would you explain what gas monitoring is, or what applications you'd kind of see it in? Well, the, from an application perspective, what we're what we're really looking for is toxic combustible uh, or other dangerous gases with a depleting oxygen. Uh, in air, uh, we want to we want to ensure the the safety of of personnel working in a space and ensuring that we limit the amount of exposure to specific target gases. So now, obviously, the, to detect these gases, um, you know, you can talk about your three components. The sensors being one of them. That's kind of your key component. I mean, if anything fails, you know, the sensor really has to be the one that uh, you know is is kind of at the heart of uh, the whole situation. So, what kind of different sensors uh, do you have in these systems? Well, there's really there's really four main sensor technologies that we see being used currently in the commercial and, and industrial gas detection industry. They do vary depending on the application that you're dealing with, but the uh, if I was going to really get down to the technology standpoint, it would be electrochemical cells, uh, solid state sensors, catalytic pellister type sensors, and infrared. Um, the, between those four, that would cover, I would guess, probably somewhere in the high 90% percentile. Okay, so now what for for each of these you know, these chemical sensors, each of these four four different types, what what would you say are their strengths and weaknesses of the of the four? Well, the electrochemical cells we use predominantly for detecting toxic gases. Uh, their strengths are a very high resolution, so we're able to see in in a lot of cases very minute levels of gas, even entering into part per billion ranges. 
uh, they're very specific to the to the gas that we're targeting. Um, when, when when they do have cross sensitivities, they're they're generally very well documented. So from a from a call, uh, pro standpoint, uh, they're they're uh, very very reliable. On on the con side, they tend to be a little bit more expensive, and they do have uh, in some cases shorter usable life than some of the other sensor technologies. Uh, solid state sensors are are really were, I guess, the first commercially available uh, vehicle exhaust sensors were solid state, and they really kick-started the, ho- the whole commercial gas detection industry. They still do have a use. Uh, they are uh, long-life sensors, relatively inexpensive, um, and they, they are very good for general contaminants. So if you, if you don't know exactly what you're looking for, these, uh, these will, will pick up a variety of different compounds. Uh, some of the disadvantages with solid state is that the maintenance requirement is uh, is a little tricky. There are some workarounds, but the, really the, the to do it properly is a fairly involved process. And the cross sensitivity that's inherent in these sensors uh, can lead to nuisance and false alarms in in many applications. Uh, the uh, the third type of sensor are catalytic pellister sensors, and these are, are really exclusively used for, for combustible gas detection. Uh, they're relatively inexpensive, very accurate, um, and have a have a life in you know typically in around three to five years, depending on the application. Um, really, the, the from a from a a con standpoint, the only the only one that I can think of is that they they are susceptible to some poisons. Um, which would bring us to infrared, and the infrared sensors have uh, have the advantage of of really no no consumable used during the measuring process. So they have a very stable baseline, um, and in some cases uh, calibration almost becomes unnecessary. And we do recommend checking them, but uh, in some cases there's there's really no no drift in the signal over time. Um, con to that though is that they are uh, they are a little, little bit more expensive, uh, and in some cases uh, can be two to three times the cost of, um, of other technologies that could be deployed in, in a similar application. Now, I guess, um, which, one, which one do you find is, is most common out of, out of all of them? Well, I think on the whole, uh, electrochemical would be the most common, but it really does depend on, on the specific application that you're looking at. Um, in vehicle exhaust, uh, from an Armstrong monitoring perspective, we're almost exclusively electrochemical. Um, I know there are still some manufacturers uh, in North America that are that are still using solid state sensors for carbon monoxide. Um, from our perspective, it's not the best technology to be using, but um, but there's they still are uh, they still are available. Um, when we're getting into uh, refrigeration rooms and, and applications like that. Really, the industry standard is infrared, um, and and most of the manufacturers that are providing these types of systems do have either non-dispersive infrared or photoacoustic infrared uh, sensors available. Um, I guess combustible gases, you'll find a mix of uh, of typically catalytic and infrared sensing. Now, I, I guess when you when you talk about the the different you know you know 
makeups of the, the the three components, the sensor and 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 the different uh, you know monitoring components. What you know when you go from manufacturer to manufacturer, obviously as an engineer, you're like, okay, how can I make these all equal? What what kind of varies between the manufacturers that you see? I mean, you kind of you kind of pointed out that you know sometimes they'll use a different type of sensor, whether it be you know uh, solid state as opposed to electrochemical. Um, are there right. other differences, and, and, and what, what would you say those were? Well, there, I mean, there, there are a variety of different, uh, different strategies that, that are in use by, by gas detection companies today, uh, ranging from design to, to maintenance and installation. Uh, I mean, if I can touch on a few of them, uh, one of the, the, the key determining factors that we see is length of warranty. Uh, and if I, can, if, if I can speak to the Armstrong monitoring side of it we offer a full two-year warranty on our on all of our electronics uh, which is usually about double that of, of our competitors uh, that that is a, a pretty significant uh, difference between manufacturers um, we also focus on on ease of installation we want our equipment to be very easy for the installers to work with um, and that's reflected in our design philosophy most of our products use commercial off-the-shelf uh, electrical enclosures. So it's enclosures that our installing contractors are familiar with and that they're, they're used to working with. Uh, we don't really do much in the way of, uh, of nice architectural plastics uh, because really the, the, the application doesn't demand it. And it, it, they're not intended to be pretty. They're intended to be functional. Um, and, and that's, again, a, a philosophy that separates us a little bit from some of our competitors. So now, uh, I guess when you when you talk about the um, um, you know these these sensors, these gas monitors, what are some of the codes that uh, uh, people you know would, would engineers would would be focusing on? Well, again, this is this is one of these uh, these questions that's got a, a bunch of uh, a bunch of different potential answers depending on the application and the jurisdiction, um, and in, oftentimes we'll, we'll have multiple regulatory considerations to to look at and and try to to work into uh, a system design uh, ranging things ranging from from whether a, a location is dis- defined as a, as hazardous um, and then getting into building codes uh, state state and international mechanical codes and then looking at federal and state exposure limits uh, from bodies like NIOSH uh, OSHA and ACGIH so they they all have slightly different exposure limits um, and determining which one is the most appropriate for that application can be uh, can, can sometimes be a trick um, when we're looking at refrigerant applications um, in the US we're looking at uh, at ASHRAE 15 is, is really the uh, the standard to go to for for system design now is that I mean you know obviously I think that uh, you know when you talk about exposure limits and and, and um, you know you're dealing with enclosed uh, you know uh, you know, products of combustion and things like that with, a, you know, parking garages or other, other hazardous uh, areas that uh, it's probably pretty well regulated and, and mandated by that. Refrigerant, is, is that, I mean, how does that work into, uh, into the codes? Was, I mean, obviously ASHRAE, ASHRAE 15 is a standard, but, uh, you know, is it, is it codified uh, in, in most jurisdictions or, or is it just something that, you know, is, is kind of nice to have? Um, my view on it is that uh, the the engineering community as a whole are, have have really embraced that as the uh, as the engineering best practice. 
Uh, in some cases, it's not always mandated, um, but it, it, it certainly is looked at as being the correct way to do it by most, by most, uh, most consultants. Okay, fair enough. Obviously, you know, anybody, anybody on construction, safety first. We have to think about uh, the, you know, the, the safety of, of the owners, and it wouldn't be, um, you know, doing our due diligence, I guess, to, uh, to kind of uh, not put it in, you know, purposefully not put it in. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really the standard that people are going to be held to is, you know, what, are the, what is the risk and what are the avail- available technologies to mitigate that risk? And if you've, you as a consultant have made a decision to not use a commonly available safety uh, or asset protection system, and there is ever an incident, it certainly could, uh, could be reflected back on the, uh, on the designer. Oh, Absolutely. Um, so now, when when the designers look at at these uh, you know gas monitoring systems, what are some of the things that they should should be aware of, or they should they should keep in mind when they're uh, they're laying it out, or, or maybe early in the design, some things that they should they should think about. One of the, the things that we that we really encourage people to do is to 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 take the time to fully understand the application, and and when I when I say that. Uh, what I mean is, is getting a real understanding of, of what is expected to be taking place in that, um, in that environment, what gases are expected uh, in the case of a vehicle exhaust application, what types of vehicles are going to be operating in that, spaces, uh, in that space. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times we've seen uh, CO only or carbon monoxide only detection systems specified in dealerships that are selling diesel vehicles. So they're... they're, they're uh, the default behavior is, is vehicle exhaust equals carbon monoxide, but it gets a little bit more complicated than, with, than that when you're dealing with, with mixed vehicles. Um, we, we also want to encourage people to be looking at potential interference gases. Um, if we can go back to the example of solid-state sensors, um, they, are, they are still in use in parking garages, um, and it's you know, the worst-case scenario of a nuisance alarm with a solid-state sensor in a parking garage is the fans will start. Uh, but when you're looking at a uh, municipal or service garage where there's things like brake cleaner and paint thinners and carb cleaners and things in the air, that cross-sensitivity can lead to a lot more nuisance alarms and potentially evacuation of personnel. It becomes, um, you know, you become worried about a cry wolf type of scenario. Um, so so having a, you know, a thorough understanding of what's going to be there will help a consultant make uh, a more informed equipment selection. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I mean, there are other, certainly other considerations, um, like the size of the space to be monitored. Um, you know, what the mounting heights, what what, what gases are going to be monitored for, and what the appropriate mounting heights are. Uh, the zoning of ventilation, uh, whether there are specific out, output requirements to building automation or uh, or other monitoring systems. Uh, you know things like uh, other auxiliary equipment. Uh, really understanding what what you want to have happen when there is a elevated gas reading. Okay. Now, I mean, as as far as the you talk about um, you know distance, the 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 area that it can monitor, uh, the location of it, the mounting height. What are, are are now are each of the sensors depending on the different technology is that gonna is that gonna vary a lot or is there something that's that's more of a, a standard rule of thumb? 
um, you know, how would you how would you describe at least just the, just if you focus on the spacing and the mounting height? Well, for for vehicle exhaust applications, which really are the mo- most common um, commercial gas sensing application, we we advertise about a seventy five hundred square foot coverage area per sensor head, which translates to about a fifty foot radius. Uh, that's a, a fairly common number in our industry. You'll see some manufacturers as low as 5,000 square feet. You'll see some as high as 10,000 square feet. Uh, the reality of of today's gas detection industry is that we're we're for the most part all buying our sensor elements from the same group of companies. So there are you know 10 to 15 manufacturers of of sensor cells in the world, and we're all we're all buying from that same group. So nobody really makes a safer gas detection system, I, w- I would say, from, um, from a detection threshold standpoint, at least in the commercial space. Um, so, you know, if you, if you take that 7,500-square-foot rule, you could probably apply it pretty, uh, pretty fairly across the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the catch is that that 7,500 square feet counts on a sensor being mounted in the center of a space so that you can you can get that 50 feet all the way around if it's wall mounted then you cut that in half um, what, what I generally encourage consultants to do is, is to locate the sensor where they feel it's appropriate and then draw a hundred foot circle around it to get a sense of where their coverage areas are going to be right now what about mounting height well, mounting height is uh, again a, a, one of these one of these topics. There's a, a little bit of a you know bone of contention in our industry. Uh, with with carbon monoxide sensors, we're all generally in agreement that uh, somewhere between three to five feet in the breathing zone, effectively, is the most appropriate place to be putting carbon monoxide sensors. Uh, when we're dealing with NO2 or uh, nitrogen dioxide, we, there is a fair amount of uh, of discrepancies. Some manufacturers are, are recommending having the sensors mounted uh, at the top of the space, uh, 18 inches from the ceiling, while others are, are recommending down 18 inches from the floor. Um, the, the, the really important determining factor is the relative density of the gas. An NO2 at room temperature is heavier than air, or slightly heavier than air, which means that once it's, it's cooled down, it is going to settle at two to three, two to four feet above finished floor. So our view at Armstrong is that the most appropriate place to measure it is in that four to you know three to five foot space in the breathing zone, which will provide traceability to what somebody in that space is actually being exposed to. That's the standard that, that a building owner or operator is going to be held to. Uh, you know, what did somebody breathe in? Uh, and and it, to me, it's most appropriate to uh, to measure in that uh, in that area. Now, as as far as the logic goes, I mean, obviously, um, I, I think that you know the the NO or the uh, was NO two, NO two, the diesel exhaust essentially is uh, uh, you know when you talk about mounting it up high, and I've, I've seen that quite a bit, mounting up high, it's 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 kind of I guess part of the reason is that it may be it may not be at a room temperature because it's going to come out of the exhaust hotter than air. Um, and also, so that would make it lighter than air, and it would also be that uh, you know if you're if you're dealing with vehicles that may have uh, a a top mounted exhaust, um, you know I'm just trying to point out different why that would be up high. Is that is that accurate? 
Yeah, that's yeah, and that's and, and and when I when I came into the industry ten years ago, that was really the um, the the school of thought, and uh, we looked at it and started to see more and more vehicles that have bottom exhaust. Whether we're talking about passenger vehicles with you know with the cost of gas now uh, seemingly always increasing, you're see, starting to see more and more diesel vehicles on the road. Those are coming out of the bottom. We're starting to see more and more municipalities looking to diesel vehicles for their uh, for their work trucks. Uh, so more and more diesel pickup trucks on the road. Uh, whether we're talking about courier courier delivery vehicles, again bottom stack exhaust or bottom exiting exhaust. The issue with with mounting a sensor up high is that while hot gas does rise, who's to say how high? Um, if you're putting an NO2 sensor up at you know, 30 feet, and you've got, you know, you've got a mix of vehicles, some top stack, some bottom exiting, you may not always catch it up high, but you will catch it in the breathing zone, whether you catch it as it initially rises when it's hot, or if you catch it as it cools down and settles passing through the breathing zone. Right. So I guess, I mean, there is certainly is logic to having it up high. And if, if you're looking for the most rapid detection, when dealing with top exiting, whether it's tractor trailers or buses, there certainly is an argument to be made. Um, but I wouldn't do it at the expense of having one in the breathing zone. It, my view is that if you're going to do that, it should be in, in addition to. Okay, excellent. So, I mean, essentially, you're protecting that breathing zone. So, like you said, whether it's going up or coming down, eventually it's going to pass through the breathing zone, and you want to protect the occupant because safety is your number one concern. Yeah, and that's that's really why we're putting these systems in there is to protect personnel in a space. And so, so measuring their actual exposure, to me, is the most logical way of, of ensuring their safety. Okay. Um, now, if we now uh, obviously switching gears to the the other area that you know it's the primary focus, refrigerant. You know, it, spacing and mounting height for refrigerant. What uh, you know, what's your what's your take on that? Well, we recommend having your your sensor mounted uh, typically from six to eighteen inches off the floor, uh, as as close to the chiller as we can get. Um, the the best rule in my view of uh, as far as determining number of sensors is one per chiller. Uh, now, if you've got uh, several chillers in very close proximity that are all the same refrigerant, there may there may be an opportunity to cost engineer down a bit and and, and make use of a single sensor. But if I was uh, if I was asked to give just a general rule, mm-hmm. I'd count on a sensor per chiller. Okay. Now, it doesn't does it matter, you know, if it's if it's you know a four ten A or one thirty two. I mean, as far as different refrigerant types go, you still you still want it mounted down towards the floor. For for most common uh, commercial refrigerants, yes. The only the only I guess major exception to that rule would be ammonia. Uh, ammonia tends to evaporate very quickly, uh, and it is lighter than air. So when we're dealing with uh, with ammonia chiller plants, whether it's uh, arenas or, or other uh, applications, we, we tend to recommend having the sensor up high. Okay. Now, is that, now, <laughs> just, just to make sure I'm clear about this, does that mean up high in addition to a sensor in the breathing zone? 
No, well, no. This one with with ammonia, it's generally going to be. Um, it's rare that we see a slow leak that'll settle in the breathing zone. Like it's it's gonna it's gonna leak and then it's gonna go up. Um, and, and the risk really isn't so much that somebody's standing over it when it's leaking. Mm-hmm. It's going to pool at the, at the top of the space, and so we want to detect it as it pools. Okay, so basically, there's no there's no problem about warming up, cooling down, anything like that. You know, if ammonia leaks, it's it's going to go up. And obviously, you know, it's it's one of those refrigerants that if it starts to leak, you're going to know it pretty way pretty pretty uh pretty soon because it's yeah i mean the, the, the ammonia the compound itself is highly aromatic so it's uh you know in in many ways your your nose is a is a highly effective gas sensor when we're when we're talking about uh compounds like ammonia now i've I've seen a lot of uh conflicts with uh just kind of coordination in general with with these gas systems so uh, what's what's your preference i mean what if some, a designer asked you how how should I specify one of these systems would you say you know put it in the specs would you say put it on the drawings what i mean what are some of the things that designers need to keep in mind um when coordinating it with uh you know not only maybe architectural or um you know to get to get the you know alarms buzzers in the right locations or whether it be electrical getting getting the power where they need to sure well one of the things that we really like to see um which makes it which makes it very clear for for us and for our uh, for our representatives is a schematic showing uh, power coming to what fans are being activated by by what relays um, you know how many sensors are in a given zone how many how many zones are being being brought back to the controller um, it's to me is really the best way for an engineer or a consultant to con- communicate what they want this system to look like um, you know in, in addition to to a nice schematic uh, a floor plan showing not just sensor locations, but but how those sensors are intended to be wired is uh, is great because what it what it allows people to do is is to put uh, you know to put conduit in 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 the slab prior to construction, which can uh, can certainly make things a lot easier. Uh, we're starting to see more and more people trying to try not to eliminate the uh, the conduit from view. So having an understanding going in of where the wire is to be run uh, will allow those those types of systems to be installed very very uh, clean looking. Um, and really, the uh, the other consideration is is to to consider the maintenance aspect of it. So so go in knowing that these systems are going to need to be accessed on occasion, whether it's at a six month interval or an annual interval, uh, and to to put pieces in place that will allow that that activity to take place with a minimal amount of effort and that's whether it's things like preamps or um, you know not having a sensor directly over uh, um, a vat of biodiesel uh, as an example mm-hmm. um, you know consider consider the um, not just the initial installation but also the ongoing maintenance of these systems okay now, when you talk about the, like the electrical connections, is it is it pretty much you're going to have a single point power connection to your to your devices, and that's going to be at your your main panel, and the rest of it's low voltage, or what? You know, how is it kind of in general? 
How is it? Most out? most systems with remote sensors are going to be uh, your line voltage to your controller, and the controller will provide low voltage power out to the um, to the remote sensor heads. Uh, there are certainly cases where uh, we'll have transmitters that are um, really operating uh, on their own that are that are pulling low voltage power. Um, whether it's from uh, from a control system or or, for, or other uh, other interface, um, it really does depend on the application. Now, what about uh, what? What I think would be fair to say is that there are a variety of different power options available, mm-hmm. uh, and it's something that can be uh, can be really engineered. You don't have to just take it as it is. Uh, I mean, s- some of our more common standalone products are designed for 110, but we make them in both 24-volt DC and 24-volt AC versions as well. Okay. So now I guess you talk about, you know, so it's been detected, say, for instance. Your refrigerant has been detected. Now, obviously, you have uh, audible and, and uh, visual alarms that come into play. So, and yeah. I guess I, could, I can even lump, lump down, you know, even, you know, I guess – Let's let's focus on those two because we can go into the breathing apparatus and the, uh, um, you know, obviously the remote shutdown as well. But are there, I mean, there are there different stages of alarm. Well, with with the way that that uh, Ashray fifteen is written, um, there is there is not a staged alarm. It's it simply says that you need to to alarm both audio visual inside and at every and outside every entrance to the mechanical room um, when the when the gas values exceed the uh, the time weighted average TLV which the trick is that for many refrigerants is not established so there isn't a number that you can look at and say well I have to I have to alarm at this level to meet code uh, or to meet ASHRAE 15 um, what we typically do is is we take advantage of the accuracy of the uh, of the new infrared sensors, and we try to al- we try to alarm at the lowest reasonable level. Um, the reason behind that is that refrigerant is is a is an expensive product, so we want to catch a leak as early as possible. Uh, we want to protect not only the uh, not only the personnel that could potentially be working in the space, but we also want to protect the investment of the of the building owner or operator. Who've got you know, a bunch of money sunk into uh, into the refrigerant that's in their chillers? So, I mean, and 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 two, I guess I could point this out. When we talk about alarms, it's going to be mostly on the refrigerant side. I mean, are you alarming the uh, like vehicle exhaust or something like that? I mean, it's just a fan kicking on. Well, in, in many cases, yeah, we 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 typically encourage people to to look at. Um, to look at what they want to have happen when, and, and generally speaking, our alarms are are done in conjunction with with the two established exposure limits. So one will be an eight-hour average exposure, and the other will be a 15-minute short-term exposure limit. So if we look at a, a parking garage as an example, there's no need on detection of a low alarm of carbon monoxide, as an example, to turn on alarms and horns and and and, and likely panic anybody that could be working in that space, that's a situation where you can simply turn on an exhaust fan, clear the air from the space, and it's you know business as usual. Um, when you get into that higher level of alarm, there's obviously something going on that's not allowing the ventilation system to clear 
the uh, the build up quickly enough. And it's a situation where we want people to be aware that there's a, a potential problem and that they they likely will want to uh, to leave the area. So I mean, you know, I guess would would you would that just be a sound alarm, audible alarm? I mean, what? I'm just, we've, we've I'm seen just it. Of... We've seen it done a variety of different ways. Our our monitors themselves include audible uh, alarms, uh, and certainly are available with uh, with strobe type devices as well. Uh, we manufacture and uh, and provide uh, multiple kind of audio visual combination devices. Uh, we don't see them used terribly frequently in in commercial parking type uh, applications, but. Uh, but there are certainly uh, some that will have uh, alarm lights come on um, when there are when there is a, a high level detected. Now, what about uh, you know? I, I guess some one of my examples. If I get back to the chiller entrances at the yeah. chill, at the entrance to a mechanical room, um, I guess what are, what are some of the things that, that you'd expect to see? You know, an audible alarm, a visual alarm, um, you know, possibly a manual shutdown. Um, to be able yeah, to... by code, by code, we need to have uh, at every entrance. We need to have audio and visual alarm. Uh, you do need to have uh, not not at every entrance, but at at likely the main entrance to to the mechanical room. You do need to have uh, shutdown for combustion sources, and you do need to have uh, ventilation um, interlocks. So you need to you need to have the ability to turn on exhaust fans in that space from outside the uh, from outside of the room so that's just i mean is that like an override i mean obviously i think that you know the detection would automatically trigger a um exhaust but is there some sort of you know secondary exhaust that's required it's really a safety uh, i mean it's really a second level of, of safety um as you said everything works as designed there should be so the fans should already be running. Um, there should be you know the, the the boiler should already be shut down, um, but it gives you an opportunity to just absolutely ensure that um, that those two things have happened if there is a refrigerant leak. Now, what do you, what do you what would you talk about when you talk about uh, um, breathing apparatus? I mean, obviously, I think that uh, that's one of the things that pops into my head when I said, "Okay, you know, you got you got the light flashing. You may want to enter the space, but obviously, you need to take precautions." So, what I mean, what sort of precautions can we take uh, for protection for, say, anyone going in to uh, you know try to repair the the space? I mean, is that something that that you'd want the uh, you know uh, anybody to to be able to to don, or do you want to have uh, you know them to call a you know technician in and then they should be you know especially licensed or equipped to to handle this or, or how would you how would you typically recommend that well our our approach really is to uh is to have really two levels of alarm and the first is a relatively conservative number uh it it would allow somebody to um to work in the space without uh the benefit of of, uh, of breathing apparatus uh, and that second level is is one that that uh, while somewhat arbitrarily set is is a, as a level where we we've kind of gotten to a point where the leak is 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 getting worse. Uh, the ventilation system is not able to clear it uh, as quickly as uh, as it's occurring, and we do want people to to leave the area at that point. Um, from a breathing apparatus standpoint, it's it's not. Um, 
from an Armstrong monitoring perspective, it's not our area of expertise. Mm-hmm. So we generally will defer that to uh, to manufacturers who specialize in it. Uh, my personal view is that it's not something that we want just anybody running into a room, putting on a you know putting on an SCBA and running into a room to uh, to investigate a potential issue. Uh, really, the the SCBAs there is a there is a training requirement. Uh, for their use, and in, in many jurisdictions, there's a fitment requirement for their use. So really, it, it, it should be left to qualified personnel, whether they're they're on site or whether it's a, a subcontractor that's coming in to uh, to respond to a leak. Uh, my my recommendation would be to leave leave the uh, the fixing of a potential issue to those who are are trained and qualified to do so. Okay, so I guess it would be safe to say then. That you know, you go and you design your your gas monitoring system, but you make sure that the owner, um, you have that conversation with the owner, saying, "Okay, in the event of a leak, in the event of a high leak, that uh, people need to get out of the space. You know, what is going to be your plan of action? Are you going to have somebody qualified, or whether or not you're going to th- hire a third party? So you, at least you have that kind of that plan of action um, discussion." Uh, prior to an event happening, so I guess that would... absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it, it's something that needs to. It, 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 there needs to be a plan in place um, for dealing with a refrigerant leak. It needs to be really communicated to the personnel that uh, that could potentially be responding to it. Um, and it, and really, you could uh, you could bring it as far back as building it into the. Uh, Going into the system design, so understanding what what an owner's intent is on how they want to deal with uh, a leak should there should there be one, mm-hmm. and uh, you know if their intent is to to address it with personnel that are on site, uh, ensure that the um, the appropriate PPE is is made available um, to that staff. Okay. So now, getting into the installation of it, I mean, obviously, you know, we've designed the perfect system. Now it's it's construction time. Let the uh, the contractors do what they will. What what are some of the things that uh, you see going wrong with the installation of uh, of your equipment? Well, one of the biggest ones uh, that w- that we've run into is uh, is is the materials that are used. So. Uh, we have devices that are uh, that are intended to be to be mounted with the conduit coming from the bottom, uh, and the reason for that is that uh, we don't want any condensate kind of gathering and, and dripping down onto onto circuit boards through uh, through the conduit. Uh, water damage is one of those things that that's never covered under warranty. So by having the conduit come up from the bottom, you you eliminate that risk. Um, at least from uh, from from dripping on the board, um, use of uh, use of unshielded wire is another one where uh, a certain certain uh, contractors have have tried to save a little bit of money or make use of, of wire that they may have already had on on site, and and using unshielded wire uh, can lead to certainly can contribute to noise issues, uh, which can manifest into nuisance and false alarms. So, so those are those t- typically the, the biggest two. Um, those are the yeah, those are the big two. I mean, always, um, you know, we've enjoyed uh, a lot of loyalty uh, in, in the contractor community where we've 
where, where, where contractors who have worked with our systems tend to be repeat buyers. Mm-hmm. So they become quite comfortable with them. But, uh, but really reading the manual, taking the time to, to read the manual and understand, um, understand how these devices are, are intended to be installed uh, is really the, the, the single best preventative step that can be taken to ensure the system works as intended. Uh, I mean, there are, there are so many differences moving from one manufacturer system to another that it's, uh, that it's really almost a crucial step to, uh, to ensuring that it's, that, it, that it's going to work right when the power gets turned on. Mm-hmm. Now, as, as far as, like, you know, when this, this, uh, you know, these systems actually get turned on, um, obviously, with with construction going on and the coordination, or you know, wiring, you know, being you know required, uh, is is there an issue? Or you know, I mean, it's almost it's, it seems kind of you know self sufficient to say, well, you know, if you want safety, you should have it you know from the beginning when you're going to start the chiller right. or whenever you're going to you know load up the chiller. Um, if you're going to have vehicles uh, or anything like that, to have it as early as possible. I mean, is there I guess any other standard as to when you should you should have these active. Well, I, I would ag- I would agree with you. Um, you know, the, the the sooner the better um, at a real general level. Now there are some you know some gotchas that come along with that. Now we've we've recently seen an example where a system was installed right away, and then they've gone back and painted the uh, painted the space after the system was installed. Uh, we've seen p- people install systems and then, you know, seal the floors, uh, and those type of things can can really play havoc with uh, with gas detection systems. Obviously, the um, from a from a sensor perspective, the the electrochemical cells all include a diffusion barrier, so things like paint or uh, sprayed on coatings, once they're airborne, can can stick to the to that. Uh, to that diffusion barrier and prevent gas from actually flowing into the sensor cell. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talking about solid state sensors, it, it's you know it can be much much worse uh, because a lot of those coatings can can, can continue to off gas for months, um, and that that sensor oftentimes will not be able to tell the difference between uh, an off gas from floor sealant or carbon monoxide. Um, you know, I, I recall seeing an example of a of a uh, uh, condo building in uh, in Minnesota where they sealed the floor after uh, after installing solid state sensors and uh, effectively ran the uh, you know ran the heated garage all through the uh, all through the winter with you know 100% heat all the time wow because the sensors thought they were seeing gas all the time so i guess another another reason to to get away from that solid state sensor yeah, I mean it's 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 one of the ones that uh, that 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 really highlighted it for us that you know if if you don't need to use this technology, there you know my view is that there are better technologies available for uh, for the same cost. So why would you not why would you not go down that road? Right, you know, and especially when you talk about construction, I think you know you've ju- you've just named two things: painting and floor ceiling. Those are going to be like the last things that are done. So, I mean, if you're going to start the the uh, system anytime before that, you're going to have to go through those two phases. So, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, you know if, if if there's steps that can be taken to protect them in uh, during that process, then you know if they need to be installed prior to. I mean, there's certainly you know you talked about 
a variety of different reasons why you would want them in place and active as early as possible. Um, you know, oftentimes these, these uh, well, most times during the construction stage, these parking garages are workplaces, and uh, as such, we have a we have a duty to to ensure that the occupants are are protected. Um, an easy way to do that is to turn on the gas detection system, um, but you do need to be mindful of of what's going to happen after that could potentially interfere with with its proper operation. Okay, now. I'm just talking off the top of my head here because you know when I think about you know construction and I think about air handling units, typically you're going to have your 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 uh, you know your construction filters and then you're going to change those out and you're going to put the final filters in before you leave. I mean, is it would it make any sense to say you know what you know during construction you're going to have uh, you know these the sensors uh, active you know to protect the uh, construction workers and then afterwards you change those you know as the, as a last step you go in and you change those out i mean is that have you ever seen that done is that cost effective or is that is that even possible well we, i haven't seen it done in a commer- from a commercial perspective uh what we have seen is that uh, on some of our products there is a um, uh there is a uh, effectively a protective sticker over top of the face of uh, of some of the uh, some of the sensor modules that can be removed after uh, it does inhibit gas flow a little bit, but it does allow the system to work. Um, in other applications, more industrial applications, we actually have um, clients who will who will ask for a second set of uh, second set of sensor filters, and so they'll keep the first one on while they're uh, while they're doing all their assembly. Painting and, and, and finishing of their of their product, and then they'll replace the uh, the filter that may have may have been you know hit with overspray or something uh, with a new one before it's shipped to their client. Okay. Now those those filters you're talking about uh, is that is that for a particular type of sensor or is that in, in this particular case it's a it's an activated charcoal filter okay. uh, that's that's uh, that's used on a combustible sensor. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, certainly there there are. Um, should a client really want to to go down that road, that you know, we can uh, we can provide uh, tearaway filters, or tearaway um, stickers, effectively that will uh, that will still allow some gas flow, mm-hmm. uh, but but will uh, will protect the uh, really the finish of the uh, of the sensor from uh, from marring prior to. Uh, prior to occupancy of the space. Okay, so probably best is to to cover it up when you're uh, you're doing those final finishes, but Exactly. It's one of those coordination issues that need to be handled with the contractor. So, yeah. talking about maintenance. Now that we've got them in and construction is done, what what are we talking about maintenance here? I mean, what what do we need to do as far as, you know, testing these things and and making sure they work and and periodic testing or, you know, changing out things or yeah, what do we what do we have here? Well, really, the the the, the requirement for for testing is one that, in, in many cases, is uh, is codified and is and is is actually part of um, health and safety, uh, whether it's state or provincial uh, law. Uh, the the requirement to to verify proper operation of these systems. Um, what I can tell you is that the more often that they're checked and calibrated, the the safer they're going to be. Um, and in many cases, the more energy efficient they're going to be by 
by ensuring that a system is only activating at the the design threshold, you prevent early activation, so unnecessary ventilation, um, which can occur and, and can be you know quite costly. So, so it's a, really, the, the the requirement for maintenance is, from our perspective, we recommend an annual, uh, a minimum annual calibration. Mm-hmm. Um, really, a a six month check, a twice annual verification of operation, is uh, is always a good idea. Uh, one of the 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 issues that we can run into with certain sensing technologies is that when the the sensor does die, and that that's the the system or the component of the system that that really has the uh, the lifetime associated with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a sensor does die, it can sit at a zero output level, um, which effectively looks like no gas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's simply not responding anymore. So there very well could be gas there. And by doing that verification a couple times a year, you ensure that uh, that, that doesn't that's not a case um, on the site you're working on. So okay. it's uh, an important safety check. So that's that's a calibrated gas that you're kind of just you know spraying on the sensor to see that it detects, correct? Yeah, in most in most cases. Now, the, where that gets a little bit tricky, and as I spoke about a little bit earlier, with solid state sensors, they they require ambient temperature and humidity levels to respond properly. So, flowing gas from a uh, uh, from a premixed cylinder. Mm-hmm oftentimes will uh, will not give the most accurate calibration because it's it's hundred percent dry coming out of uh, coming out of those cylinders so one of the uh, one of the tricks that's often used in the industry is to run it through a wet sponge or a humidifier of some sort so that it does pick up some humidity and that that can work but it's not really the best way to do it um, the best way and the way that uh, that we uh, that we promoted Armstrong is to uh, to have that sensor in a mixing chamber where you're creating that target um, the target gas concentration using a mixture of ambient air and and pure target gas, and you're tuning the sensor to to that uh, to that environmental condition. Um, it's certainly more uh, more intensive of a process, and it's one of the other reasons, especially in commercial environments, that we that we try to steer people away from from solid state sensors. Okay. So now, I mean, I guess uh, with, with lifetime longevity, you're talking about the sensor being more or less the weakest link in the, in the system. Um, what, uh, what, what sort of lifespan are we looking at from, a, from an owner's perspective? Well, it's going to, again, depend on the application, and mm-hmm. it's going to depend on the sensing technology. Um, from an from a electrochemical cell, um, dealing with vehicle exhaust, typical lifetime for CO sensors is between three and five years. Uh, Armstrong monitoring warranties all of our commercial CO sensors for three years. Uh, so we're expecting people to get anywhere from, in, in reality, uh, four to six years of usable life out of them. Um, from an NO2 perspective, the, um, the original NO2 sensors that, that a lot of companies were using, uh, you'd get about a year to 24 months out of them, and now we're we're starting to see sensors that are that are getting into three and four years. So the technology is really improving, and it's it's uh, extending sensor life. Um, infrared sensors will be somewhere between five to ten years. 
Uh, catalytic sensors typically three to five years, and uh, in solid state actually have a, a really about the longest life expectancy, somewhere somewhere between seven to ten years, hmm. which is one of the reasons they were so attractive. Okay, so I mean, essentially, depending on what type of sensor you have, uh, you're going to be looking at anywhere from you know typically the three to five year range. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's kind of a, a good rule of thumb to to work from. All right, Scott. Well, you know, we have a, a lot of great information here. Uh, we talked for for quite a while, but I, I think it's 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 all good and uh, some some great learning information, obviously, and uh, you know, with safety uh, being of uh, foremost uh, importance here. So, if, if anybody wanted to learn, you know, if they didn't if they didn't get everything they wanted out of this uh, out of this episode, what where's some of the places they could go to learn a little bit more? Well, probably our best resource uh, is our website, uh, armstrongmonitoring.com. Lots of information on uh, on not only our systems, but applications, hazards in those given applications, and um, strategies for dealing with specific uh, target gases. Uh, They can also reach us by email, uh, sales at armstrongmonitoring.com, or by uh, by phone at uh, 800-465-5777. Um, for those uh, those listeners who may be in the U.S. Uh, or Canada, we have we're, we're very lucky to have uh, what I consider one of the very best rep networks in the industry, uh, and we can certainly uh, we can certainly channel uh, channel anybody over to one of our uh, our local reps that that serve them in their area. Excellent. Well, uh, I for 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 those listeners, we'll uh, make sure we get that information posted in the show notes, uh, so you can have it there, and you don't have to write it down while you're driving or running. So um, I appreciate you being on the show, Scott, and uh, thank you for your time. Well, thanks very much for the, uh, for the opportunity, Matt. All right, and we're back. Thanks once again for Scott uh, to take, a, uh, take the time out of his busy schedule to be able to talk with us. Um, yeah, we got a lot of good information there. You know, it, I, you know, it's, it's amazing. I look at the clock and I'm like, wow, this is running on like, you know, close to an hour. But I think that there's a lot of good information uh, in the show and I hope you got a lot out of it. So if you did, you know, feel free, pass it along. Um, let us know. I mean, it, you know, like uh, me and Scott were talking, it was, it's, it's about, you know, if we can save somebody one headache, uh, it, during the construction process or the design process, uh, you know, it's 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 well worth uh, spending the time here to to talk about something that that seems so simple, but is so often just kind of you know mishandled. You know, between you know who specifies it, who who buys it, who installs it. Uh, you know, is the mechanical contractor uh, buying it? Is the electrical contractor installing it? What is you know what's the temperature controls contractor supposed to do? Is it supposed to be on normal emergency power? Ah. It's just, you know, there's, there's so many things to think about when you think about these types of systems. So I really appreciate Scott and his, uh, you know, network of people being able to, uh, you know, help us out on, on times like this. And don't, you know, if you have a question, don't, you know, don't be afraid to ask. You know, talk to somebody who, who is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a little bit more knowledgeable about uh, installing these things. But hopefully you are now that person. And if you like what you heard, please share it. If you want to uh, have any other different kinds of topics, please let me know. Uh, we're getting requests in, so you can contact me, Matt, at buildingx.co, or uh, just visit the site and uh, uh, shoot me a message there at, at buildingx.co. Otherwise, uh, we will uh, wrap it up this week, and uh, we will talk to you later. So until next time, remember, know what you build. 
and share what you know.